Welcome to The Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is dedicated to helping people love Jesus and the people they encounter every day. Today, you will listen to our most recent Sunday sermon. So sit back, relax, and let Jesus speak to you wherever you may be. And now, this week's sermon. We're going to be doing a series on worship this month. And uh, I love worship. I can't sing... I can't really play an instrument except the uke, just a bit, about four chords. Gets me in trouble, love it. Somewhere over the rainbow a little bit until it gets complicated. And, uh, but I really love um, the culture of worship, what's co- what worship and praise is supposed to carry for us in our individual lives. So this isn't going to be a series for musicians alone. This is going to be a series for a, a, a group of people, a culture of people that loves God and wants to live in the fullness of what God's gotten designed for them, which, of course, includes music. Uh, it's a part of culture. It's a part of our Christian walk. God created it. It's really amazing. Um, but it's not exclusively just for worshipers or artists or creatives, but the culture of worship, worship and praise, and all those things that it carries in community and our personal walk with the Lord. It's beautifully biblical, and we're going to talk about those things. Today I'm going to start off in Psalms 8, 1 through 2, and then Matthew uh, 21. And I'm going to read a passage to you guys, and then we're going to take a look at the way, the way worship and praise carry some pretty deep meaning for us. So if you turn your, to your, uh, you turn your Bibles to Psalms 8, 1 through 2, we're going to start with a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I want you to really highlight that part of established strength. And if you look into how that translates, you can see actually that it, it's interpreted strength as strength attributed to God in song. So that part right there, it's important to understand that that establishing of strength uh, does not come without the annotation and without drawing out the understanding that it's song. And songs are supposed to carry some pretty profound things for us. And so you can see there that it establishes strength. And if you jump over to Matthew 21, 12 through 17, you see Jesus actually quote this passage in about verse 15. But we're going to start in 12 because the lead up to this is really important. Because as we talk about worship, as we talk about this strength that God establishes in us and the role that music or song plays in it, it's important to understand the lead up to some of these things in our life. And if you start in verse 12 with me, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then what followed that is really interesting. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So you see two things that are pretty profound and powerful right here, that Jesus drove out the misuse and abuse of the temple. So if we understand New Covenant, if we understand our role, even our life in Christianity now, we understand that this sanctuary matters, and that it is actually Jesus' intention and desire to drive out anything that exists in this sanctuary that isn't of him, that isn't glorifying him, Uh, And so that's a really excellent thing Jesus does with us is he drives out 
adulterations and alterations of his design. That's a part of who he is. But really, also, we've got to see it as he does the same thing with us personally. Because we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We, ourselves, individually are the temples of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus does this work in our life. It's actually his desire to drive out the misuse and abuse of things inside of us that aren't of him, of the design of Jesus. And why does he do this? Well, the next verse should be an indication of what Jesus' heart is in driving out these things and that he healed the blind and he healed the lame. So it can look pretty messy when Jesus walks into your life and starts turning over tables. You know, like sometimes we ask, uh, when the Revelation talks about, he stands at the door of our life knocking, waiting for us to let him in. Okay, so if we see it as a front door, and we see ourselves as a temple of God, we open that front door in a salvation prayer, right? We're like, hey, God, come on in. And we're like, this is so exciting. I'm so glad for him to build up cool things, bring fun things. This is awesome. And he does, but he also drives out and overturns things that aren't of him. And what's interesting is there's pigeons on these tables. Like, this is a messy scene when God turns over tables. And sometimes people are like, man, it gets pretty messy. Once I really open up to this inner healing and freedom thing, it gets messy. It's actually worse now than when I wasn't even trying to get healthy. Have you ever had that help happen? Hey, it was cleaner when I was in bondage. And Jesus turns over these tables. You got feather flying everywhere. You got birds that escaped their cages. You've got poop from the cages flying everywhere. I have a guinea pig, and it's disgusting. Just period. My daughter Brightly wanted a pig. So we're like, well, guinea pig or pig? I think guinea pig works better for us in our house. Uh, and is, is here? What's going on? Oh, you were telling people about our guinea pig. She wanted a pig. She did want a pig. And we love her so much, so we compromised our integrity, you know? <laughs> we got a poop machine. We got a stinker, you know? And it's great. She loves it, um, and it's awesome. And so, no, but it stinks. And so if Jesus came into my life and flipped over that guinea pig cage, it would make mess everywhere. It would be poop everywhere, the little hay. It would be everywhere. It would be disgusting. And so Jesus all of a sudden comes into our life, and he starts turning over some tables. Like, this is messy. So Jesus drives out the wrong, the bad, the, the rooted places of wickedness or bitterness so that he can heal our blindness and he can heal our inability to walk with him. So look at the symbols of this. We want to see Jesus, and we want to walk with him. He heals the blind, and he heals the lame. So your inability to walk and see Jesus, walk with Jesus and to see Jesus, Jesus drives you out so you can be free, and that freedom comes so that you can be whole and have the ability to effectively and maturely walk with Jesus. It's hard to walk with somebody when you can't see him, first of all, but second of all, it's impossible to walk with somebody if you can't walk. So if you're spiritually blind and spiritually lame, Jesus' goal is not to just drag you along. It's actually to make you whole. So it might fling up some bird poo and feathers. But his goal is not to just make a mess. His goal is to make you whole. And, and this might seem off topic, right? Because I said we're doing a worship theme, and it sounds like I'm doing an inner healing deliverance theme. Uh, 
fortunately slash unfortunately, if you want to avoid these things, they are connected. Because the person, the person from a real and authentic place of connection with God sings true praise. Jesus said, he said, there will come a day where there will be those who worship me in spirit and in truth. So you can't sing songs in an authentic praise way and worship way that aren't actually your convictions. You, you can blend into the crowd so that when people look around, they won't judge you for not singing. You can look like everyone else by copying and imitating the surface behaviors, but to truly exercise praise and to be established in that strength means that you're experiencing Jesus in this capacity. Jesus, the Jesus that frees you. Jesus, the Jesus that heals you. Jesus, the one that's actually connected to you. So real praise, real worship comes from a place of authentic connection. So it's more just like I'm now overflowing with a testimony and a witness of who God actually is in my actual life. So I could say, uh, I, could, I could sing these songs in a way that is actually accurate to my life. I don't have to sing them in a way that's accurate to Mikey's life or to Vincent's life or Justin's life, but I get to sing these songs and it's as much my worship as it is anybody else's worship. And I would actually encourage you that if you hear a song playing and you don't know that part of Jesus, meet that part of Jesus right there. There will come a day where they worship me in spirit and in truth. So if you don't know the truth of Jesus in that way, ask him. Be like, I don't even know what this means. Uh, you, you know, uh, when that part where he said, uh, um, so we sing, my soul sings, or get up my soul. Don't you get that part right there? Where, where, where we're literally talking to our soul? Isn't that an interesting thing? Like, I, I, before I was a Christian, like, really walking with the Lord, would have thought that somebody telling me to talk to my soul would have been weird. It would have been New Age mystical weird. They would have been wearing something odd and then, like, believing something and talking mantras and stuff. So I would have thought soul talking to my soul would have been odd, right? It would have been displaced and dislocated and strange. But then you actually hear these songs and you realize that it's a spiritual ability that God wants you to have. You see it in Psalms 95.1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 103.2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What's it doing? It's talking to the soul and telling it to do something. So in a place of, uh, so the Bible says God is close to the brokenhearted, right? So we can get this cognition, this understanding of God, this paradigm of God that, hey, God loves to come and, and hug me when I'm brokenhearted. When I'm downtrodden and I'm broken, he gets close to me. This is absolutely a biblical fact. Also, there's a biblical fact that at some point, God actually equips you to tell your soul to change its state. So in one scene, God's like, I'm close to you while you're brokenhearted. In another scene, he's like, now I want you to learn to use your mouth and change the, and alter the state of your soul. 
So in this scene, it's broken, it's fractured, it's downtrodden. In this scene, I'm teaching you the authority you have in Jesus to be able to talk to your soul and alter that state which was broken and downtrodden, depressed, anxious, lost. This is where the role of God being a great listener and a great comforter is important to understand and the role of Jesus being a liberator and bringing you out of bondage, bringing you out of brokenness is equally important to understand. You know, God didn't just come and give Israel a hug when they were in Egypt and like, hey, I'm really sorry that you're getting beat, enslaved, forced to work for another nation. I'm really sorry about that. Let me give you a spiritual hug so you feel better about your bondage. What did he do? He sent liberation. He sent freedom. He sent them the power of exiting from their slavery. And this is the role God plays in our life because it's connected to the nature of Father. So every way that you are not like Heavenly Father, God's plan is for you to walk with Him to become like Him in every way. Do you like that? I think this is magnificently amazing and also insane. That's crazy. That's crazy that I can have the mind of Christ. That's crazy that I can have a heart like God's heart. That's amazing because I'm a human being and I don't actually currently possess it. I need to receive it from God. And so you see this in Matthew 21. It starts to get into this place where in verse 15... After he heals all these folks, he says, But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, so they start praising Jesus spontaneously as a result of the driving out of wickedness in the temple and healing people. So what comes from these two things? Organic, natural. It's very natural to praise Jesus when he does these things to you. Because you're like, hey, Hosanna. Yeah, no, I got something to say. He just healed me and freed me. I've got something to say. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And I could sing it, and I could sing it, and I could sing it, and I could sing it. And what's interesting about the angels is they keep saying holy in heaven. They don't really get tired of that song. Because there's something that happens when you meet Jesus that the, the, the characteristics start to flood out of your mouth about who he is. The story about who Heavenly Father starts to flood out of your mouth. Because you're no longer an orphan, someone who doesn't have connection to Heavenly Father, who isn't defined now by Heavenly Father. You are sons and daughters of the Most High, which means that the story you tell is a story of Heavenly Father. And not just a story in Heavenly Father who's up there, but a story of Heavenly Father who is now in you. Redesigning you, transforming you, healing you, delivering you. It's an amazing process. One that we got to see Peter go on from the moment that he starts following Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, follow me. And he's like, cool, I'm going to follow you. And he starts following Jesus. And all through this process, three years later, he cuts the dude's ear off. He's still in process. He's still becoming like the person he's following. He's still becoming like the person he's following. So we see this pattern that takes place. And so establishing strength, it literally looks like the strength that is seen in a song of God. 
the strength that is seen in this result is seeing in a song of God. When you feel worship, it's not just because there's an emotional thing happening through music, but when you feel worship, there's actually a spiritual uh, truth-telling that's taking place. So it's like uh, where, uh, there is a lion inside of, my, inside of me. See, this is truth-telling about the nature that exists inside of you when you have Jesus in your life. He is both the lion and the lamb, so you see this lion-like ability in you because Jesus lives in you. So this is speaking a truth about your identity. So when you come in thinking of yourself as feeble, as the worst failure ever this week, which maybe some of you did, or just maybe you've always seen yourself as a failure, an insignificant, unworthy, and worthless, all of a sudden, songs of God starts to penetrate that brokenness and penetrate that deception and establish a truth in Jesus that will disrupt the narrative that the world has given you or that your humanity has given you. So it says, but when the chief priests heard and the scribes saw this wonderful things, Hosanna to the son of David, they start to praise God. And they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah, have you never read? And this is where Jesus quotes Psalm 8 too. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So notice this is a little bit different in language from what it says in Psalms 8-2, which is that he has established strength. So established strength versus prepared praise. So Jesus wasn't misquoting this because if you really dig in on the meaning of these things, it's trying to illustrate to us that there is a story that we tell through our praise that establishes strength. So how do I know this? Well, the Greek word on this which is inos. Inos is a primary word, properly a story, but it's used in the sense of praise. So it's essentially storytelling through praise. So when we hear worship songs, when we sing worship songs, when we read the Psalms, what we actually see is a narrative, a story that's unfolding through praise and through worship. And it actually affects us, not only on an emotional scale, but it affects us on a formation scale. So if you're appropriately experiencing worship, you are becoming the songs you're singing. So we know that music does some powerful things to our brain. We know that music, I mean, this is scientific. This is, you can even experience it in your life. Music does some powerful things to our brain. Uh, music affects our memories profoundly. This is how I memorized the ABCs. A, B, C, D, right? Probably all did. But also there's entire homeschool curriculums that are based on singing songs about history and you just retain it. It's amazing what songs can do. It's amazing the way it affects your memory. And so when they do MRI imaging on your brain, music gives you a greater ability to retain information in the memory part of your brain. This is a profound effect. Also, music gives you an ability to emotionally experience something on a deeper level than if it was just spoken. So we know these things psychologically, scientifically, spiritually, biblically. We know that music has a powerful effect on our brain. When Jess and I uh, first started dating, very first date, we went to Melting Pot 
and it was a great time. We went with another couple. I lied to her, and I told her that they needed us to go with them. That was actually, surprisingly, not my first lie of our relationship. I've probably only ever lied twice to Jess, uh, and they were in the first week of us getting to know each other. The first time was I lied to her about why uh, I told all of their friends I wanted all their numbers so we could have a barbecue and get to know each other. I got her number, I put my phone away, and I got no one else's number. That was my intention the whole time. So the second thing was that I told her that we needed to go on this date to help this couple out. Anyways, they were longtime daters and boyfriend and girlfriend, and they're actually married now, my friend Matt and Ashley. So they were friends for a long time. So anyways, I, I, I got her to go on a date. That was my main goal, you know, by any means necessary. It was wrong. I repented of it already. She knows. We're on the same page. We've been healed up. So, so, but on the first day, we go to Melting Pot, and then, you know what? That wasn't long enough. We want to spend some more time together. I'm like, do you want to, like, so we went to Summerlin Parkway, 215, overlooking the city. So beautiful, right? So romantic. I'm awesome. And I'm borrowing my dad's car at that point, and we go up there, and we park. And we didn't want to park in the car because boundaries, right? And so we get outside of the car, and I'm playing the soundtrack for our date, which is super romantic. It was Space Jam. Space Jam. Have you guys ever heard the soundtrack Space Jam? Everybody get up. It's time to jam now. Come on, Basketball Jones. The whole nine yards. R. Kelly, I believe I could fly before it got weird. And all of these things, you know? All of these songs. And it was like, dude, that was the, that was the musical birthplace for us of our romantic relationship. So when we hear Space Jam now, you know what we have is an association of the inception of intimacy, romantic connection. It has this wonderful emotional connection for us. So when we play Space Jam, it's like, remember when we first started dating and then that car battery died while we were dancing? I immediately had to apologize to your father for being two hours late to curfew. It was a great start to our relationship. Really got me off on a great start of trust with her parents. But this place of music has a powerful connection to memory, to the emotions of memory, to association. The reason why this matters is because in our journey with God, we start to sing songs or understand that songs are talking about the nature of our Heavenly Father. We begin to experience it in transformation we get to experience it in impact. Biblically, these narratives are there. We hear them in our worship songs. We hear them in the music and the songs and the cadences and the tones, the whole nine yards. And we begin to experience God in a beautiful spiritual way that has an emotional connection. See, our relationship with God shouldn't be dependent on emotions, but a good relationship with God will have an emotional impact. You'll have emotional freedoms. You'll have emotional breakthroughs. You'll have an emotional encounter it's not everything, but it's a part of it. There's an intellectual part of Christ that actually grows in you as you walk with him. This is the part I've always felt was really, really undermined or underemphasized in church, is that as you walk with God, you're supposed to get smarter. Did you know that? Like when we walk with God, the mind of Christ is the supreme intelligence of everything. What he knows and understands about everything is beyond all things. His ways are higher. The way he thinks is higher. So we're in relationship with a supreme intellect. The smartest ever, period. So smart, he has the ability to create from his words. 
This is an ability and this is an intelligence that is far beyond ours. So when we have relationship with God, we shouldn't just be feeling good about ourselves or a situation. We should be growing in our mind of Christ. So our thoughts and our intellect should be growing to be like his. Of course, the heart after God, your heart should be absolutely being encountered with the things of God. And you should be experiencing emotional freedom and spiritual freedom. You should be experiencing breakthrough in all these ways. Music and songs carry the story that establishes strength for your transformation journey. It's meant to be catchy. It's meant to be easily remembered. Because you know how hard it is to remember the things of God when you're in the thick of a trial? But you can remember a song. You can remember a cadence. You can remember a rhyme, a rhythm. You can remember these things and they begin to call to you. They begin to speak to you. They begin to speak something that's contrary to your human tradition and story arc. Here's something that you and I should know. Is that without God, we have a very typical default human story that unfolds. You see it with Cain and Abel, right? You see violence. You see jealousy. You see it with Joseph. You see violence, deception, jealousy. You see it with all kinds of human stories throughout mankind. Humans have a story arc that's really clear without God. So all of a sudden, God and who he is, there's a story to it. There's a narrative, right? So instead of the power of bitterness and unforgiveness, the story arc of God is forgiveness, No, 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 let go of it. Don't protect yourself through the means of bitterness. Let go of it. Don't hide those things in your heart. So alternative to bitterness, unforgiveness, God has an alternative storyline, and it's felt and heard in song, and it's supposed to establish the strength of the Lord. Because we lend to and tend to pull on other strengths. For some of us, we tend to pull on the strength of denial. We got real good at stuffing down the anger. What do I do with anger? Stuff it. What do I do with depression? Stuff it. What do I do with fear and anxiety? Stuff it. It becomes our mantra. It becomes our verse and our chorus. We repeat it over and over again. We've got a, we've got a rhythm to it. We know what to do with it. Every situation we run into, I, oh, I know what to do with this. The salvation of my life, the refuge of my life, denial. Pretend it doesn't exist. The problem with stuffing, the problem with those means of denial, is that God calls us to hide his words in our hearts so we might not sin against him. So when you hide things that aren't God's word in your heart, they actually become a relationship issue between you and God. They actually become your root cause of sin. Because you hide God's word in your heart so that you might not sin against him. So if you hide bitterness in your heart, it manifests sin. You guys like this part? (laughs) So when I'm worshiping God, I'm supposed to be experiencing the truth and the spirit of God in such a way that it begins to disrupt, dismount, and destroy the narrative that I naturally have unfolding from my humanity. Oh, isn't that fun? This is why he's ordained this praise in us. He's ordained this story in us. We sing these songs of God because the fame of God. 
Right? You sing songs about the famous. You sing songs about those things which are famed, which those things which you want to make famed, that you want to magnify the Lord. Right? God is already so big and so beyond our size and scale. We're not making the actual size of God bigger. In essence, we're just making our perspective of God bigger. Does that make sense? So when I'm testifying about God and I'm magnifying God, I'm actually making the already big attributes of God apparent in their appropriate scale to those around me. So if somebody's like, man, I am just, I hate that person. Then all of a sudden you begin to make large the scale and the, the essence of God, which loves. Somebody's like, man, I, I'm, I'm depressed. What you, what you begin to understand is the nature of God which has the ability to go beyond depression and have the joy of the Lord as our strength. You begin to understand that this nature and the story of God, you're like, oh my goodness, it's interacting with the story of humanity. It's interacting with it. So when there is this, there is this element of God. When there is this thing, which I suffer in separation from God, there is this thing in God which cures that ailment. See, orphans have a very similar story. Spiritual orphans have a very similar story. They experience all of the ailments that uh, are alternative to God. They experience all of the spiritual genetics that are unlike God. Because when you're a spiritual orphan, you don't have the DNA of God functioning inside of you. So you have the DNA of things that aren't God functioning inside of you. So it's very natural that you experience deep and profound loneliness when you're an orphan, it's actually a very simple, basic byproduct. Loneliness. Because you're not connected to God. You're not family with God. So all of a sudden we start to take on this choice that I am a daughter of God. And that starts to say something to the narrative of our humanity. That starts to say something after we've experienced the worst places of our life. That starts to say something after... Our romantic uh, connections fall apart. That starts to say something after our business adventures fall apart. That starts to say something after we experience jealousies and backbiting. We start to experience all of humanity's storylines, narratives, and arcs. And all the characters that exist in that space and what their motivation is. And all of a sudden, rather than grabbing a hold of the strength of humanity and its response to those things, I grab a hold of the song of the Lord and it establishes His strength in my life. This can create an alternative for you to anger. So when you begin to sing the songs of the Lord and you begin to sing these things, you begin to harmonize with His voice, you begin to go to those places, you can actually see that the narrative of God disrupts your cloak of anger which covers you and protects you. It disrupts it. And you might be super uncomfortable when this first starts to happen. Because this might be everything you've known. You're like, this is what I do. I lie. This is what I do. Anger protects me. This is what I do. I hide. This is what I do. Denial. This is what I do. I push people away. This is what I do. So all of a sudden we begin to rehearse the narrative and the story of our humanity. Meanwhile, the songs of God are saying something really different, like really different. 
And so I want to actually encourage you in a real pragmatic way, because if you can't sing like I can't sing, I encourage you to allow these, uh, these melodies and these musical songs that have a different narrative, especially than the one that's plagued you. What's your thing? What's your weakness? What's that thing which has ensnared you? What's that thing which has captivated you or captured you that isn't God? What's that thing? Learn a song that is counterintuitive to that. Learn a song that is a disruptor to that place. Learn a song that teaches you a new way. Learn a song that introduces you to an aspect of God that you can encounter in spirit and in truth. Learn that song. What's that song saying? It's really, really good. There was a season in my life where that Jonathan David Helser song, You're a Good, Good Father, was just like everything to rewriting my connection to Father. And that, I almost couldn't hear the lyrics enough to hear that, that God's a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. You're a good, good Father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And it started to rewrite my expectations of my Heavenly Father. It started to rewrite my behavior because we all have fathers, we all have mothers, right? We all have leaders in our life. And so you might not understand it or know it, but you've actually mapped out your behavior to be successful in the eyes of those who have led you. So if you've had a slave driver of a leader in your life, you've learned to work hard, suppress your emotions, your feelings, and your own ideas, You've learned to forfeit your own creativity and imagination, and you've learned to just take orders and do it without complaining. If you've had a manipulator as a leader, you've learned a whole lot of really interesting things. And I can go down the list of all these things, right? I can go down the list of all the ways that we've been shaped by leaders, but the point is this. It's when you begin to understand the story of your heavenly Father it begins to disrupt your orphan tendencies. It begins to disrupt how you've behaved. And that your need for attention, that orphan driving thing, which is like, look, I'm doing something good. Please, everyone, see me. See me and recognize I'm great too. This need to be seen, to be affirmed, to be honored by man, starts to get disrupted by God. And when you see somebody else celebrating, you're like, mm, mm. They've done a tenth of what I've done. And for a tenth of the time that I've done it. You start to get that jealousy start to raise up. That envy start to raise up. That covenant start to raise up. And you're like, what is this inside of me? Well, I encourage you at that point that you begin to recognize your orphan tendencies. That you start learning a song that introduces you to Father that disrupts that narrative. Learn it. Is it you're a good, good father? It's who you are. That's awesome. Is it Promises by Maverick? Great. Is it Oceans by Hillsong or whoever originally wrote it? What is it? You know, because the Ocean song is literally the story of Peter getting out on water and walking to Jesus. So, so you see these things. They're meant to create and enhance biblical narratives for us to be able to experience the nature of Heavenly Father so that we can become like Him. And I just saw the time, so we actually have to finish. We're going to receive communion together. So if the worship team can come on up. There's a real place that we experience in our life. There's a real narrative that God is unfolding in our life. You know, even when we pray for people, 
And when we prophetically pray for people or we prophesy over people, the goal here is actually there's a wonderful plan that God has for people's lives. So we want to hear from God and tune in to what that plan is and share it. This is what we do when somebody first gets baptized. This is what we do when somebody's being dedicated to the Lord. See, we don't baptize babies in water, right? We, we wait till they're of age to be able to choose that in their own faith and walk. But what we do is when we dedicate babies to the Lord, what we do is we begin the prophetic narrative of their life. Like my four kids, I've got a prophetic narrative of what God showed me for them. Brixton, Mountain Mover, Brightly, Water Walker, um, Presley, Light, Right? It's a beacon, beacon of hope, light. Uh, Monroe, anchor, because she's a tank. And so, <laughs> so these are the narratives, right? And these are the things that God begins to show us about how he designed somebody, about the work he's going to do in somebody. And you can see Brixton's proclivity for excellent, powerful things. And you can see his proclivity for accidentally knocking over things that aren't supposed to be knocked over. Because a maturing mountain mover doesn't necessarily have great accuracy yet. They're like, I think that's a mountain. Oops, that was a person. So they're maturing, right? They're maturing in their accuracy. They're maturing in love. And you can go all throughout the line. Somebody who is prone to being a great serving heart, they understand the needs of others. They're like, I think I'm called to just be drained out for the rest of my life and have no happiness. And then they realize in maturation and accuracy, no, like you don't give to everything that's walking. And you're nobody's savior. Start to let go of those things and it's really great. It feels great. Feels great when you get delivered from your humanity's narrative and story. You begin to take on the story of God for your life. Thank you for listening to the Mountain Podcast. The Mountain Church is located in Las Vegas, Nevada, with services happening every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. If you'd like to know more about the Mountain Church, please visit us at themtnchurch.com or watch one of our services on YouTube. Again, thank you for tuning in.